Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I am Nate Herbst. I'm Grant Persett. Today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Mike Lacona, who recently authored Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? What We Can Learn from Ancient Biography. Now, the whole Greco-Roman biography idea that Mike Lacona has kind of brought to us is one that has caused some controversy, and I encourage you to listen to him, to hear him out, and whatever position you take to realize that that this is a, a man that loves God and wants to defend the scriptures, and he is putting forth a really unique perspective on all of this. So I encourage you to hear what he has to say today. You could get the book at Amazon. To tell you a little bit more about Dr. Lacona, he teaches at Houston Baptist University. He's a world-renowned expert on the evidence for the resurrection. He is an author. I encourage you to check out some of his other books. And that's enough, I guess, about uh, the background. Let's get right into the interview. We don't have a lot of time, and it's a two-part interview, so I want to make the most of the time that we do have. So let's get right to the interview. Welcome to the God Solution Show, Dr. Mike Lacona. Hello, this is Mike. Hey, Dr. Lacona, can you hear us? Yeah. Thank you so much for all your work on this topic. Yeah, well, thank you for, for having me. I appreciate it. I don't want to derail the conversation on your new book because we've got questions, but can I just ask you kind of an updated question on when you share the resurrection now, the case for the resurrection, what is the strongest pushback you're getting? I mean, I, I thought that the main alternate theory was um, hallucination theory, but where are you getting the most pushback when you share that argument? Well, with scholars, it's hallucination, but I think it, it, um, it goes to a deeper thing, and that is that they don't believe in the supernatural. Mm. And I think that's the, the greatest objection that everyone has. So rather than just saying, I don't believe, um, you know, and revealing that their worldview is influencing their, their uh, opinion, they just take on, you know, the explanation that it's a hallucination, that the disciples hallucinated, and they have to come up with, with you know, a combination of things, because they have to explain Paul, they have to explain the appearance to the skeptical half-brother of Jesus, James, things like that. But uh, I, I just had, um, last uh, week, Monday, a week ago, I returned to uh, home in Atlanta uh, from spending a little over a week in San Antonio, at the annual meetings of the Evangelical Theological Society and the Society of Biblical Literature. And on the way back, I got to, uh, you know, I, I usually uh, will, you know, read. And it was an exhausting week. So I planned on just turning on my uh, uh, my noise-canceling headphones and uh, listening to Christmas, start listening to Christmas music and just relaxing on the, the two-hour flight back. Well, I got talking to the guy in the seat next to me. I was in the aisle. He was in the center. And and um, come to find out, he's an Old Testament scholar. He had just attend, attended the same conference, the Society of Biblical Literature. And um, so I asked him some stuff about the Old Testament, and we talked about the Old Testament for a while. Um, he, he teaches at a good school, and um, 
but but he, I suspect, is an atheist. If not, he's is an agnostic, for sure. Um, and uh, so he turned the attention to me, and you know, to the New Testament. He asked me about my new book. Uh, so we talked about that. I mentioned about the resurrection of Jesus, and so um, he said, "Well, you said the resurrection is plausible." I said, "Well, I think it's more than plausible. I think it occurred. I think we can show historically that it's probable." And he said, well, how do you figure that? So we got in this conversation about the resurrection, and his main objection was miracles, the supernatural. So I gave him some a number of different evidence evidences for a spiritual dimension to reality, and he pushed back some, and I gave him more evidence. Well, what's really interesting is uh, we didn't know this, but the guy sitting on on the window seat, in the window seat, so there were three of us there, <laughs> He was listening and hearing this, and at one point he turned and he said, uh, hey, this is a really interesting conversation. Would you mind if I, that I listen? I can't help but hear. We said, well, feel free to join. And he said, no, 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 I just want to listen. And um, the, the uh, Old Testament professor said, well, are, are, you a, you know, are you a professor? He said, no, 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 I'm not a religious person. I said, okay, so um, we, we continued, the Old Testament professor and I continued to go back and forth, back and forth on this. And then um, when there was a little lull in the conversation, the guy on, in the window seat said to me, wow, you really know your New Testament. And I said, <laughs> well, well, thanks. I, this is, I eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff. He said, I, I'd really be interested to know your thoughts on the Mormon version of Christianity. Wow. So I said, well, sure. And so I started to share some things. and said, you know, I've actually done a little work in this, and uh um, and I started talking about the book of Abraham and also how there is a lack. There's absolutely no specific confirmation of the Book of Mormon from archaeology today. And so I, I ended up saying, well, you know, so if, um, you know, Mormons, I've always found Mormons to be just wonderful people. And, um, uh, I mean, I like Mormons. I have Mormon friends. But, uh, you know, if they're looking for truth resulting in eternal life, if I were them, I would look elsewhere. And uh, the guy, I guess he had a little bit of a stunned look on his face. Uh, I didn't notice at the time, but the Old Testament professor said, are you a Mormon? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I thought you said you're not a religious person. He says, no, I meant I wasn't a religious professor. Oh. "Oh." (laughs) So, um so I said, okay, well, listen, I have this uh, book that I've uh, written years ago, and it's a free download. You can go to my website and, and get it if you want. Well, at that point, the Old Testament professor handed the guy his business card, and um, and then the Mormon looked at me, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have a business card on me to, to give you. So he handed me the Old Testament professor's card, and he said, here, please, please write your website and your email address here. So <laughs> I did, and... Uh, he seemed like a good guy. I hope he contacts me. Um, but it, it was a really cool opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it all started because of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And, and you talked about how the anti-supernatural bias is the default position of academia these days. And uh, that's evident in Ehrman's work. You know, Ehrman says, are these alternative theories probable and he says, absolutely not, but they're more probable than a resurrection because resurrections don't happen. And uh, so there he goes, you know, um, begging the question and circular reasoning and, and starting with the conviction that miracles don't happen and ending with that regardless of the evidence. So I think that, um, that, that people get into a lot of danger doing that. 
Absolutely. And what Ehrman is guilty of doing is he is allowing his worldview to guide his historical investigation rather than the other way around. You should let your historical investigation and what you discover to guide your worldview. Um, the danger of doing it Ehrman's way is manifest. Mm-hmm. Um, bad philosophy corrupts good history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you allow that worldview to guide everything. And our worldviews do guide things, but you have to be open to things changing that worldview. Uh, when the facts don't, when the facts aren't in concert with your worldview, then it's time to change your worldview. It's a good point. All right. Well, let's get into your new book. Why are there differences in the Gospels and what we can learn from ancient biography? This is not something that you've uh, briefly dabbled in. I remember talking to you about this about four or five years ago, and whenever we first talked. So finally, uh, we get to reap the benefits of your long, hard work on this topic. So thank you for the book. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. It was, uh, it was a lot of labor behind that for, for eight continuous years. So um, I'm glad to have it done and out there. Nice. So over Thanksgiving, I was talking with a relative, and this person said uh, that, that we can't trust the New Testament or its accounts of Jesus. How does your new book relate to that fundamental question, just right off the bat? Well, I would first ask them, well, why do you say that? Why do you say we can't trust them? And let them answer it. Now, my book addresses the objection that you can't trust the Gospels because of apparent contradictions or discrepancies or differences. Um, so it is not an apologetics book. Um, it is a book that takes an honest attempt to look at those differences and try to account for why they are there. Um, So, I mean, there are many different reasons why there are differences in the Gospels. You have differences in oral tradition upon which the stories are based. You have differences because of redaction, which is just a fancy theological term for editing. And they could be edited for theological reasons, for dramatic reasons, just for narrative reasons, uh, a number of different reasons. So there's, uh, uh, paraphrasing is a, is a major reason for why there are differences in the Gospels. And I found paraphrasing to, you know, I discuss this in the book, as you know, um, and also compositional devices. So what I wanted to do, you know, you have New Testament scholars that talk about things like time compression, and, and uh, just a few different devices like that. Um, but that is just a guess, of course, because, you know, they're just looking at the New Testament and saying, well, this could be because of compression. Um, well, I wanted to know, you know, are there other examples? Are there examples of compression going on in the classical literature that would be biographies and histories written around the same time as the Gospels were written? Um, and most New Testament scholars today uh, view the Gospels as either Greco-Roman biographies, or at least they share a lot in common with Greco-Roman biography. And they talk about how there's a lot of flexibility involved uh, with the writing of ancient biography, that they weren't committed to the same kind of legal precision or forensic precision that we want today when writing history and biography. So, but, but little was said about the kind of liberties that are taken the flexibility in reporting that's taken 
So what I wanted to do was to go through and say, well, let's, let's look at ancient biographies outside the Gospels that were written around the same time and try to uh, discover what kind of literary devices were used and then read the Gospels in light of them to see if that sheds light on why there are differences. So I made a list of all the biographies written within 150 years on each side of Jesus not written about Jesus, but written about any figure, but they were written with it at, you know, within 150 years of, of Jesus. And I found that there were about 90 of them, and of those, 50 were, uh, that have survived uh, were written by Plutarch. Uh, not Plutarch of the Hunger Games, but the real Plutarch. <laughs> That's a good point. And uh, so, um, you know, I read through them, and I noticed at the end of those 50 by the time I got there, that nine of them involved people who lived at the same time, who, uh, for the most part, knew one another and participated in many of the same events. As a result, Plutarch tells the same story multiple times. So, for example, he tells the story of Caesar's assassination four times. He tells it in the life of Caesar, the life of Cicero, the life of Brutus, the life of Antony. And there are 36 stories that he tells in those nine biographies that they called lives back then. Um, two or more times, I, I combed through them. I found differences in 30 of them and noticed patterns of differences and inferred from that various compositional devices, most of which had already been acknowledged by classical scholars, classicists. And then I turned to the Gospels, and I had already like 50 pages of differences in the Gospels I had cataloged. And so I took 19 pericopes or stories that seemed most clearly to show the kind of compositional devices that I found in Plutarch. And you look at those in light of those compositional devices, and it's really quite amazing to, to see how it illuminates why those differences probably occurred in those 19 stories. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Would you be willing to get, kind of sketch out who Plutarch was for our listeners? Sure. Plutarch, uh, born, lived in a town called Chaeronea, um, which is in Greece. Um, he was wealthy. He was a priest at Delphi. He had, was friends with a number of high-ranking Romans. He was an avid writer. He probably wrote more than 200 things, whether they be biographies or he had a thing called Moralia, uh, where he you know, talks about different things about morals and teachings. Um, he's most known for what is called his parallel lives. So he wrote more than 60 biographies or lives, um, and 50, like I said, 50 of them have survived. And of those 50, 46 were written in pairs. So um, you got 23 pairs. And what Plutarch would do would be to take a, a famous Greek and a famous Roman, a Greek like Alexander the Great and a Roman like Julius Caesar, and he'd write a biography, a life of each, and then it would be followed by a comparison of the two. And he would show all the similarities between, say, Alexander and Caesar. Um, and he would do this, like I said, there were 23 pairs that he did this with. Uh, and the reason is because in ancient biographies, the Greco-Roman biographies, they were there to pull out from them character traits of the main character, 
things that would be for the reader to emulate or to eschew. So um, that's why he wrote in these things, to just bring out these character traits um, in a very vivid and clear manner. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a little about uh, Plutarch. Hmm. No, that's a great, that's a great um, sketch out. I, I have to admit, I don't have a lot of that history memorized or at my fingertips a lot of times. But, um, so well, it, nobody does really, unless <laughs> you have a photographic memory or you spend a lot of time in the stuff. <laughs> well, that's why I appreciate Appendix 4, where you put in the names and give the histories. That was helpful. That was very helpful. Um, well, I'm, I'm very glad. Um, I, I did that because I knew that the average reader for this book, you know, they'd heard of Caesar, they'd heard of Cicero, they'd heard of Pompey and Crassus and people like that, perhaps. But they didn't really know much about them. So I figured, you know, just a few paragraphs to introduce these characters. You know, classical scholars or students in the classics are going to know who these figures are. But New Testament students, New Testament scholars typically aren't really going to know who these figures are. So they may have heard of them, but they really right, don't know much about right. them. So that's why I wanted to include that. And, and I'm not surprised because with your case for the resurrection, you know, there would be a mention of Josephus and Tacitus. And instead of having to Google it, I just would go to your um, case for the resurrection where you'd put more information about those people. And so you, in this case, you put it right in the same book. So I, I thought that was really helpful. Um, kind of a, a side point that got me curious is you mentioned, I think it was in the introduction, that you were kind of humbled by how much you were learning about um, basically the Roman Empire and the transition from the Republic to the Empire but I'm just curious, and I, I, I don't know if there's any reason that there should be, but did that history help you understand anything about the New Testament better or put it in context better? Yeah, yeah, it did, somewhat. You know, so, for example, um, you know, Paul writes the letter to the Church of Philippi, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Philippians. Um, what I didn't realize is that is where Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and uh, Cassius uh, right around there, uh, which brought about, you know, the final steps, some of the final steps to the end of the Roman Republic. So, you know, uh, Brutus and Cassius are there to assassinate, they assassinate Caesar, and they end up fleeing Rome, and then they end up, you know, there's this big saga that's going on. It's so fascinating. I wish they'd do a movie or television series on it. It's just such an awesome story about all these events leading up to the demise of the Roman Republic. Um, so, but those battles took place, those final battles took place at Philippi, right, where Paul the church, established that church and ends up writing a letter to them. Um, start to read about, uh, see about uh, the King Tigranes, um, who ends up getting defeated. Uh, I think by Pompey goes and ends up defeating him. But he, he was also, I think, uh, Lucullus, another great Roman general, fought against Tigranes and Mithridates. And you hear about these figures, but then all of a sudden you see that Tigranes was this great king who just overshadowed Mithridates, and he was so powerful that he was called the King of Kings. Hmm. And you find other figures that are called the King of Kings of those days. Does that, does that bring anything to your, your mind? You know, Jesus being called the <laughs> right. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
or I think Pompey at one point is called the Savior. Um, and you find other Romans are, are called Savior. And so, you know, Jesus is called Savior. It's like, in your face, Romans, you know, you think you guys are great and others think they're great, but let, let us, the Christians, there is only one King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's one Savior of the world, and it isn't any of you guys. It's, it's, it's Jesus whom you crucified. So you, you see these things, and, and you can see what the Christians were doing and why the Romans would have found such uh, claims of the Christians to be so offensive. Wow. Wow. So do you have any favorite um, histories of the Roman Empire that you'd, you'd suggest? I mean, I've kind of tried to peruse and look through Rise and Decline of the Roman Empire and that kind of stuff and just kind of got a little bit lost in all the details. Do you have any favorites you'd suggest? Actually, I, I don't. I, um, you know, I, I studied it mainly from the, the writings of Plutarch. And there's, you know, of course, Plutarch doesn't get everything correct. Um, and... There are others, you know, like Suetonius and Tacitus and Cassius Dio and Livy, Ovid, who, you know, you put all these things together. And some people, you know, classical scholars spend their lives on things like this. Um, if I had one book, I, I don't know. All I can say is, you know, what I learned from Plutarch is just really amazing. I can remember years ago uh, reading Suetonius, his 12 Caesars, and it's like, ah. Oh. You really just have to, uh, I mean, it's somewhat interesting, but it's, it's kind of dry sure. reading compared to Plutarch. Plutarch is just an excellent writer, and he just keeps you glued to the story as you go through it. It's, it's, he's really a good writer. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Now, something else is kind of coming back to me now. I, I just bought the book about two days ago on Kindle, so I kind of perused it really quickly. Um, but one thing you said was that, or I, or push back on this, please, but you said the New Testament gospel writers actually wrote more strictly to the history than a lot of other ancient writers. Am I getting that correct? Um, they stay closer to their sources okay. than other ancient writers. So um, originally I had thought about doing a synopsis with Plutarch's lives, these nine lives. Um, a synopsis would be to compare the stories. So like when we come to the Gospels, there's a synopsis of the four Gospels, and it, it doesn't, it's not a harmony of the four Gospels. A harmony of the four Gospels tries to take the four Gospels and harmonize them into one single account of Jesus, whereas a synopsis of the Gospels will have four columns, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's got like 360-some uh, pericopes or stories about Jesus in the Gospels, and then it will compare how the Gospels tell the same story line by line. And you can see when you look at it this way, it, it really makes it easy to see the differences in the way the Gospel authors report the same things. Mm. Um, well, what I wanted to do was do the same thing with Plutarch's lives, and to take um, the 36 stories that I found in parallel in these nine lives and compare them line by line. But what I found is that you just can't do it because Plutarch changes things, he paraphrases things, he treats his sources 
uh, more loosely uh, than, say, the Gospels would. And Josephus does the same thing. You know, he will talk about in his writings how, you know, he's going to use his sources, especially the scriptures, and he's not going to add to them, he's not going to subtract to them, um, and then he goes ahead to add, subtract, and change things. <laughs> so, which tells us that um, either that Josephus lied, or what I think is more likely, when you spoke in those kind of terms, they, they kind of meant things a little bit different than we would take it today. When we say we're not going to change a word, that's what we mean. Mm. But when Josephus or other ancient authors would say the same thing, I think they just meant large scale. Kind of like the, we might say, okay, just give me a minute. Well, we don't really mean a minute. It could be 10 minutes. It could be an hour. Right. Um, oh, that'll take forever. Well, we really don't mean that. It just means it, it may take us a long time. It might take us a couple of hours. <laughs> so um, I think that that's how they did the same thing. And, and Jesus spoke in those kind of hyperbolic terms, like he'd say, you know, uh, not a jot or tittle, or not, in Matthew's version, he says, not the smallest portion of a Greek or Hebrew letter will pass from the law until all these things are accomplished. But we can see when we read um, our, our Bibles today, there are a number of places, especially in the Old Testament, one, maybe two in the New Testament, where we have no idea what the original said. Or we, or I, I would say this, we don't have the original, so we have to amend the text, we have to craft the text to say what we think it probably said, but we have no manuscripts at all that tell us what the original said. So when we talk about nothing passing or dropping out of the law until all is accomplished, we're either going to have to say all has been accomplished, or we, we have to say that Jesus was speaking in hyperbolic terms, or you have to say that he was just wrong. But when we see others doing the same kind of thing, you know, I think we can. Con I think it's best to conclude. It's most plausible to conclude that they spoke in these hyperbolic terms. Sure. Um, so I, I guess that's a little side road there. Let me get back to the main point, and that is this: when we look at how you know scholars say that Mark was the first gospel written, and that Matthew and Luke used Mark as their primary source. So that gives us a good opportunity as students of the New Testament to compare what Matthew and Luke do with Mark. And what really struck me, you know, I got into this to, to understand the differences, but at the end of the day, um, what probably shocked me or surprised me more than anything else was not the differences, but how similar Matthew and Luke are to Mark and how much they stay close to their sources, how little they do with their source, compared to what other ancient authors do with their sources. They feel more freedom. Other, other authors of that time felt far more freedom, or took more freedom, in their use of sources than the Gospel authors did. And why they did that, we don't know. Um, I would suspect that it's because they had a great reverence for their sources, the oral tradition and for the Gospel of Mark, and they did not feel like they wanted to take the same kind of liberties to report with the kind of flexibility that others were using in that day. So that surprised me. Um, it was kind of interesting. So where I think if you were not a Christian and you were a student of the classics, 
and then you came to the Gospels, you would not complain about the differences. It would shock you about the similarities. But as Christians, we start off with the Gospels, because we haven't looked at the classical literature. And then when you do, then it sheds a new light on the Gospels, and you say, whoa, it's the similarities which are stunning, not the differences. Well, thanks so much for listening to the first part of the interview with Dr. Mike Lacona. Tune back in next week for the second part of the interview on his new book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? If you are listening today and don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I implore you to begin that relationship today by putting your faith and trust in him. You could verbalize that faith by saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. Please come into my life as Savior and Lord. If you are walking with Jesus, I encourage you to share your faith boldly with those around you. Go to GodSolutionShow.com to hear this interview and all of our others to leave us comments or maybe even ideas for future shows. You could even partner with us there. You could give a tax-deductible donation that would help us keep the show on the air and even spread the show to new stations. I encourage you to go to GodSolutionShow.com. Well, Thanks so much for listening. Keep telling your friends about the show as we approach Christmas. I hope that you're celebrating Christ's birth and telling people about the faith that you have in him. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. That's my hope, that you'll grow closer to him today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.